May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's how the third clause, the third major section of the Apostles' Creed begins. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Belief is a strange word. Uh, more often than not, people use the word belief to co-opt what they believe to influence other people. And of course, uh, we believe in all sorts of wild things. When I was a child, I believed that if I wore my pajamas inside out and backwards on a cold night, that snow would come and I wouldn't have to go to school in the morning. Quite a few of us believe that if we just elect the right politicians, everything will finally be perfect. More than a few people in this country believe that the earth is flat. I saw a great ad the other day, join us at the Flat Earth Society. We have people all over the globe. Like, if you want to know what irony is, that's what irony is. We believe all sorts of things, which is why I think sometimes it's helpful for us to think about the words we use when we talk about what we believe. Because in Scripture, the word for believe can also be translated different ways, two of which are faith and trust. I have faith in the Holy Spirit. I trust the Holy Spirit is different, similar, but different than I believe in the Holy Spirit. Whereas believe often sort of conjures up mental gymnastics, hoping for something you do not see. Faith and trust, they require a relationship. And relationships are only possible through time and experience. I can place my faith in the Holy Spirit. I can trust the Holy Spirit because I have felt the Spirit move in my life, upending things, reorienting things. Case in point, we planned this series out nine months ago. The scriptures we were going to use, we were doing the Apostles' Creed. I mean, we, we figured this out months and months ago. We knew what scriptures would be read, on which day we planned it so that the youth would be learning about it on Sunday nights and youth group and Sunday school classes could talk about it. I mean, plans were made months and months ago. And so three or four weeks ago when we received word that we were finally going to be able to do the work upstairs in the sanctuary and that we were going to have to be downstairs this day, I thought, oh, that's just a little too good. Did you hear what Stephanie read in the scripture? On the day of Pentecost, when they were all crammed in like sardines in the basement of a church. Now, it doesn't say that in scripture, but it might as well should. It says they were all crammed together in one place. Now, for some of you, that might just feel like, oh, it's a coincidence. But I have experienced the Holy Spirit. I, I trust the Spirit. I believe in the Spirit enough to know that us being down here on this day is not a coincidence. That's the Spirit's way of laughing and winking at us. You want to know what it was like to be there on Pentecost? Well, guess what, Taylor? You can't be upstairs this Sunday. You've got to cram them all together in one place. I think sometimes it helps us to remember that the craziness, the wildness of Pentecost, it happened during a gathering of the church. Sometimes I don't think we expect much to happen when the church gathers, but that's when the Spirit does her best work. When we're all crammed together in one place, these bombastic, revelatory moments can happen. All the disciples, they were carrying with them a bunch of stuff, their worries, their hopes, their fears. It's been 50 days since Easter. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. They don't know what's going to happen next. They all gather with hope, but also trepidation about the days ahead. Maybe some of us know what that's like. And boom, the Holy Spirit shows up. 
The sound of a, of a rush of a mighty wind fills the room. Tongues of fire fall upon each of them. They are given the ability, they're given these gifts that they did not have before the Spirit. Now, I think the Bible is full of these incredible moments. These times I wish I could have been there to experience it. Maybe you've done this before when the liturgist reads the scripture. You think, gosh, I wish I could have been there. Now, I would have liked to have been there to see David defeat Goliath, you know? I, I wish I could have seen Jacob jostling by the banks of the Jabbok River with an angel of the Lord. I think it would have been pretty neat to see Moses part the seas. There are all these stories. Easter, it would be pretty cool to be there on Easter. Jesus' temple tantrum, I think that would have been pretty fun too. But Pentecost has got to be near the top of the list. Can you imagine what it must have felt like, what it must have been like to be there on Pentecost. They were not the same after that, the disciples. Their fear gave way to faith. Their disunity devolved into unity. Their cowardice was replaced with courage. Can you imagine? Well, actually, some of you can because you've told me your stories. From one of you, I heard about a hymn you sang one Sunday that shook you so much to your core that you quit your job and you went into a different line of work. From one of you, I learned about a Bible study that led you to reach out and reconcile with your father with whom you had not talked in 10 years. From one of you, I heard about the tears spilt as the altar for when the very first time you believed that God actually loved you just as you were. Those stories are Pentecostal stories. They're the stories of how the Spirit can spin such salvific sundries even when we least expect it. Some of you don't have to imagine what Pentecost was like because you understand how the Spirit is still moving. But even for those of us who when we read the story and it sounds far off and far-fetched, well, who opened your ears? So that for the very first time you heard the story of salvation, who persuaded you after years that you don't have to go find God because God is the one looking for you? Who supplied grace after your last mistake? Who comforted you in your deepest heartache? Who gave you assurance when you needed it the most? The creed says the answer is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit can comfort us when we need it most. Bill Turner, a professor I had in seminary, he also said that the Spirit is the author of all of our worship. That without the Spirit, in worship, all of our best efforts are feeble at best and obnoxious at worst. If the Spirit is not with us in worship, then everything feels like a drag. You have to beg people to praise. You have to cajole those present into involvement. And you have to barricade the door to prevent people from leaving early. But when the Spirit is present, when the Spirit is with us in worship, we approach the throne of God with praise and thanksgiving. Time is just a magazine Singing is as natural as breathing. Preaching, it sounds like God is talking just to us. The Holy Spirit is full of surprises, full of creativity, full of force. The Spirit goes wherever she wants, unsought, maybe even unwanted, intent on making all things new. And that's what Pentecost really is all about. It's a whole new creation. Just as the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis, bringing forth order out of chaos, on Pentecost, the Spirit blows through this upper room and upends their orderliness for something exciting and something new. The Spirit has always been in the business of shaking things up, moving the church from where it is to where it can be, particularly when the church becomes so self-satisfied and content with the status quo. 
And right after Pentecost, Peter goes out and he addresses the crowd. He gives this incredible sermon, but it's not original. He steals everything he says from the prophet Joel. He says, in those days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, men and women, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And I will show portents in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The rest of Acts, the rest of the Bible, frankly, the rest of history is the church's willingness to try to keep up with the Spirit who is making all things new. Right after this, the disciples are trying to figure out what it means to be the church, and they have a debate, they have a fight. Is it just for the Jews? Or does it include the Gentiles? And because the Spirit is always expanding, the Spirit sends visions, offers different prayers, the disciples are knocked upside the head, and finally the church grows to include Jews and Gentiles. The patriarchal renderings of existence, they were called into question by Jesus and the Spirit, particularly as women were called to share equally with men in leadership in the early church. Paul even writes to Philemon about a slave named Onesimus, and he calls into question the practice of slavery in the first century. The Spirit is trying to change things, and yet how many times have we fallen back into previous modes of existence? How often have we denied the power of the Spirit working in and among certain people just because we think they're not the kind of people the Spirit would work through? The great gift of God's Spirit is that the Spirit changes things. The Spirit transforms. God, attested by Christ, through the power of the Spirit, makes manifest the future in the present. I think sometimes in the church, we think all that we do here is because we're trying to get back to the past, or we're kind of trying to keep up to the future, but actually the opposite is true. The church does what it does now because we're living according to God's future, not the past. We're not trying to get back to the dark ages. We're trying to get to the kingdom of heaven. So as the church, we're living according to God's future in the present. And so when we're adapting to changes, when we're moving, when we're getting tossed to and fro, that's a sign that the Spirit is with us. And the church ought, and if you know me, you know I don't like using that word. I don't like talking about shoulds and musts and oughts. But the church ought to be a showcase for what the Holy Spirit can do. I mean, Jesus delighted in calling the least likely people to be heralds for the kingdom. The last, the least, the lost, the little. The Spirit sings the same song, choosing those forgotten or harmed by the world or even harmed by the church to convey the wonder of the word today. That's why Paul writes to the church in Corinth, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's a freedom for the church to be for the world as God in Christ is for the world. The Spirit empowers and shakes and moves and raises and emboldens us to say and do what needs to be said and done. That spirit of freedom gives us the power to live differently. It animates everything we do as a church, everything we do as a community, because we're anticipating God's future here in the present. From the people we gather with, to our patterns of life, to the things we say, to the things we sing, it's all about God's future. Because in the old age, the time before the incarnation, before the resurrection, everything was in bondage to the power of death. But Christ in living, dying, and rising again, inaugurates a new age. And the down payment for this new age is the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us to live according to the future, 
right now. It should therefore come as no surprise that these prominent figures for transformation in the history of the church, people like Martin Luther or John Wesley or even Martin Luther King Jr., they all saw and attested to the power of the Spirit in the changes that they wrought. Martin Luther famously took 95 theses and he nailed them to the church door because he believed the church was falling prey to the power of sin, that it needed to change from where it was to where it could be, thus sparked the Protestant Reformation. And later he said he felt compelled by the Spirit to put it on the door. John Wesley, who followed every bit of the law from the gospel, every bit of the law, felt like he couldn't believe that he was actually saved until one day he felt his heart strangely warmed and believed that salvation was for him, not because he could earn it or deserve it. And later he said it was the Spirit who made him feel that in his heart. And then the best of all, Dr. King believed that the Spirit was going to change our country whether our country wanted to change or not. The Spirit is always bringing something new. It's no accident the church is always trying to keep up with where the Spirit is going. The Spirit is always ahead of us. Just like on Easter, Jesus is already in Galilee. The disciples are trying to keep up. That's the same with the Spirit. Because where the Spirit is, there is freedom, there is liberty. Shackles of misogyny are broken. Homophobia is halted. Racism is eradicated. I mean, I could spend another 15, 30 90, 120 minutes regaling all of us with more stories of people who have been changed by the Spirit. I know stories of racists who the Spirit kept shaking around until they saw the sin of their ways. I know broken families that the Spirit kept renewing and loving through others until they believed they weren't actually defined by the mistakes of the past but could embrace their new future. I know stories of homophobic Christians who encountered the Spirit moving in and among the LGBTQIA plus community until they realized that when God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, that God really means all when God says all. This is why the prophets are always associated with the Spirit, those who know how to speak the truth when people need to hear it. Now, prophets don't predict the future. They announce God's future, and we try to keep up. You all know me pretty well. I love to tell stories. All week, I was trying to find the right story on how to end this sermon. What's this last sort of ringing reminder that can resonate with us? And then I remembered, actually, the best stories are the stories in Scripture. Because the prophet Ezekiel, we always think of Ezekiel as the valley of the dry bones. But there's another beautiful moment from Ezekiel. He's given a vision of the throne of God. From the throne of God, there comes water. He stands before the throne, and the water begins to lap at his ankles. And then it increases up to his kneecaps. And then there's so much water that it becomes a river, and he starts to swim in the river. He says that he sees the river coming from the throne and it goes into the desert. And everything the river touches is healed. Wastelands are given way to gardens. New life springs up in places where there should not be life. That's what the Holy Spirit is like. The Holy Spirit is like living water that rushes and gushes wherever it wants to go. And everything the Spirit touches is changed. Everything the Spirit touches is transformed. Everything the Spirit touches becomes new. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I have faith in the Holy Spirit.
I trust the Holy Spirit because I feel it in this place. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.